Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. We begin a new sermon series this morning on the Gospel of John, the first 11 chapters. Like every other sermon series that I have offered here over this last year, I've selected this theme or this set of texts partly to challenge myself to enter new preaching territory. If you remember some of the series we've done this year, we did a whole series in Lent uh, on the cross. I had never done six sermons on the cross. And then on the Holy Spirit, Baptists generally avoid preaching about the Holy Spirit. And then on the parables of Jesus, that was relatively new for me too. But I've enjoyed this challenge. The same is true of the Gospel of John. For me, it is largely unfamiliar territory, at least to preach about. It may be a surprise to you, but it's not a very well-kept secret among uh, Christian pastors and scholars that folks either tend to love the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or they love the Gospel of John. Rarely do they feel equal affection for both. I think it's because the picture of Jesus that we get and the message of Jesus that we get seem very different in the synoptics than they do in John. I will admit that I am more of a synoptic gospel person. I've written on Sermon on the Mount. I've done a lot in Luke. John is a little more strange territory for me. The differences are so profound between these gospel accounts that some scholars believe that the author of the Gospel of John had no familiarity with Matthew, Mark, and Luke at all. Now that claim, like almost every other claim about the Gospel of John, is disputed. But it is true that John seems to come out of an entirely different stream of tradition with the Jesus he offers bearing relatively little resemblance to the Jesus that we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Scholars also differ on just about everything else about this gospel. A few introductory comments might make that clear. To begin with, it's not exactly clear who wrote the gospel of John. Was it John the apostle who we see in the, in the gospel accounts? Was it a student or disciple of John? Who is this mysterious beloved disciple anyway? Was it perhaps a collective effort of a school that is sometimes called the Johannine School? Or was it someone else? So for our purposes over these two months, we will just call the author John and leave it at that. And we will assume that he was Jewish, a Jewish Christian. It's also not exactly clear how John was written. There are reasons to doubt that the text we have in the New Testament is the product of a single author, but it may have layers of editing over time. But of course, as Christians, what we have is the final text in the canon, and that's the one we'll read, but there is the possibility of an, ed an editing process that is very interesting. It's also not clear where John was written. The main contenders are in Ephesus, in Antioch, and in Alexandria, in Egypt, pretty exotic locations. It's also not clear when John was written. Seminarians used to be taught as a certainty that John was the last gospel written, maybe as late as 100 or 90, and therefore it was the most remote from the time of the historical Jesus. But these claims are now challenged. It may be that John was just as early as any of the other gospels, but is simply written from a very different angle of vision, like a different eyewitness account from a different perspective. It's also not clear why John was written 
in particular, scholars have speculated about what adversaries John was dealing with, what heresies he was trying to confront, or what challenges his community was facing. One idea that I find attractive, and I hope you'll notice this if you'll read along in John with me over these two months, one idea is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke mainly report the public teaching of Jesus before the crowds, and John mainly reports the private teaching of Jesus with his inner circle, together with an awful lot of narrative commentary. The Gospel of John has a paradoxical quality, which makes me really glad that in both services today, the texts were read by children. The paradox is, well, here's a quote from Leon Morris. John's Gospel can be compared to a pool of water in which a child may wade and an elephant may swim. In other words, the same pool of water can handle both. It is both simple and profound. The words, you know, light, life, darkness, they're very clear. Anybody can understand them, and yet you can spend your lifetime trying to understand it. It's for the beginner and the mature Christian. Morris says its appeal is immediate and never failing. So I hope you will read along in the Gospel of John. I'm going to actually be talking about John 1, 1 through 2, 11 today, and and then the next week we'll go into 2.13 through 25. I hope that you'll read along with me. We won't be able to look at all the texts, but we'll get a lot of the way through. And so let us open our hearts to the Word of God as mediated to us through the Gospel of John. John's story of Jesus begins with the Word, the Logos in Greek. The Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, and who was God. Here John appears to be pulling together the personification of wisdom in the book of Proverbs and some elements of Greek philosophy. It's unique to John. John says that this word pre-existed the creation of anything. This word was the agent through whom creation came into being. He writes, What has come into being in him was life. And this life was the light of all people. There are some translation difficulties in the Greek here, but the idea seems to be that the word was the source of all life and light in the world. If there is life, it came through the word. If there is light, it came through the word. Life rather than death, light rather than darkness, the source of these good gifts is the word of God. But then at God's appointed time, the true light, which enlightens everyone, came into the world. The pre-existent word of God, through whom the world was created, entered the very world that he created. And in that amazing line, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So the very source of all life became an enfleshed, living, breathing human being. The very source of all light entered a dark world. It's a nice day for a sermon like this. The very source of all light entered a dark and stormy world and illuminated, he lit it up by his very presence. In his very person, eyewitnesses saw the glory of God. 
the brilliant light and life and presence of God come down to earth and dwelling among people was met in Jesus Christ. John says, no one has ever seen God, but it is God's own Son, only Son, who has made him known. There are shadows in the Gospel of John from the beginning, as well as a brilliant light. John makes clear that the Word became flesh who came into the world that he himself made was not recognized by most of the world. <coughs> John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. The very world, think about it, the very world which would not exist were it not for the word of God did not recognize the word of God when he showed up in the world. There would be no life without the word of God, and when that word of God showed up, all, basically all but a few, said, we have no idea who you are. This word made flesh who came into the world specifically came to the Jewish people in the land of Israel. John's Jesus is a very Jewish Jesus, and his life is spent mainly grappling with, often arguing with, the unbelieving response of at least the leadership class of the Jewish people. There are many references just simply to the Jews in John. Scholars agree that this mainly refers to the temple authorities. But tragically, Christians for centuries read this the Jews language as referring to all Jewish people everywhere in the world at all times. And this created an environment of theologically based Christian anti-Semitism that has led to prejudice and destruction for centuries. Today we know it is deadly and it must be eradicated. And so as we read the Gospel of John, we must not fall into old paradigms. But still, the struggle with the Jewish leadership is clear from the beginning. When it says in 111, he came to his own and his own did not accept him. But a minority of Jewish people did see Jesus for who he was. Word made flesh, God's one and only son, source of spiritual rebirth, source of grace and truth and salvation. John writes, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. So the story of the Gospel of John is about the Word becoming flesh, offering salvation to a dark and resistant world, with the stage of this cosmic and human drama being the dusty roads of Palestine and the community of the Jewish people, God's covenant partners. It will be a story of the very source of life and light being resisted by most and welcomed by a few. The few who wrote the story to tell us about the one whom they knew and loved. The Gospel of John devotes extra attention to John the Baptist. Some scholars think that this is because followers of John the Baptist were competing with followers of Jesus in the area where John was written, for example, in Ephesus. In any case, John the Baptist shows up in the very prologue of the Gospel of John when it says that he was a witness to testify to the light. He himself was not the light. John the Baptist already faces worried inquiry from Jerusalem officials by 119. He declares firmly that he is not the Messiah, and he is not Elijah. 
He is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. When he meets Jesus, John the Baptist immediately says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He testifies that he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. And he says, I myself have seen, and I testify that he is the Son of God. There is no delay in unveiling Jesus' true identity in the Gospel of John, as there is in the other Gospels. John the Baptist has already said so much by chapter 1. He's already been declared as the Spirit-anointed Son of God, who will also be the Lamb of God, who will be slain for the sins of the world. This appears to be a reference to the Passover as well as to Isaiah 53. He was oppressed, he was afflicted like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Jesus begins calling his disciples early in the gospel, and unlike in the synoptics, they know within moments who he really is. Andrew says to his brother Simon, we have found the Messiah. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, and we're not even out of chapter 1. Jesus responds to Nathaniel, do you believe all this because I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than these. Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending upon the Son of Man. Edwin Hoskins describes the Gospel of John as remaining strange, restless, and unfamiliar even after close study. Perhaps you feel it already. Unlike in the Synoptic Gospels, the highest mysteries about the identity of Jesus are clear in the first chapter. And so is the looming cross, the horror of what will be done to the incarnate word, to God made flesh. The pre-existent word of God, source of all life and light, son of God, king of Israel, Messiah, incarnate as an itinerant Jewish rabbi, will suffer and die as lamb of God. He will be believed in only by a resolute minority. Only they will see his glory and understand who he really is. Everybody else will either turn away in blindness or will turn on him in order to destroy him. All of this is clear by chapter 1. So the disciples will see his glory and understand who he really is. And they don't have to wait long. Three days after Jesus meets Nathanael, the, the group of disciples is at a wedding in a small village called Cana. The wine gives out. This is a bigger deal than you might think. Though if you've ever been at a wedding and the, re- and the refreshments ran out you know, half an hour into the reception, you would understand this is not something you want to have happen, right? But in this culture, it was an even bigger deal. It was a huge social embarrassment for the hosts. It also might signal their poverty and thus shame them. They didn't have enough to put on a proper feast. These feasts tended to be about a week long. So if it's on Tuesday and you're out of stuff, this is not good, right? Now, a commentator, Leon Morris, says that in that very reciprocity-based culture, if you failed to provide adequately for your wedding guests when they provided adequately for you when it was their kid's turn to get married, you could be legally liable You could be sued for throwing a bad party. Hey, we did it for you when, you know, when you came. Think about that. That's a pretty big deal. So this is not just a little problem. Humiliation, 
embarrassment and legal liability in, in Cana. Watch out. So Jesus' mother, Mary, in just a, a sweet little story, I think, says to him, they have no wine. That's all she says. As if she already knows that he might be able to do something about this besides go shopping. It makes one wonder about what it was like being around baby Jesus, teenage Jesus, 20-something Jesus, if Mary immediately turns to her son and says, they have no one. Jesus appears a bit peeved, don't you think? Woman, 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 what concern is that to you and me? My hour has not yet come. Now, commentators, pious commentators, are quick to point out that calling a woman woman was not disrespectful, but still, it was pretty unusual for a son to call his mother woman. It at least signals a certain kind of distance, a focus on his role and work and mission. He's about his father's work, he doesn't really want to be interrupted with the demand from his earthly mother. But I think something else is going on. I think he's thinking, as soon as I start showing my power to this community, I will be taken to the cross. My hour has not yet come. It is not yet time. But Mother Mary, not taking no for an answer, says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I think this is priceless. Not once has she made a direct request. She has never said, son, would you make some wine? And when he says, when he kind of deflects, not once does she say, I wish you would change your mind. All she says is to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She has made her wishes clear. The wedding is in crisis. There is no wine. What a very earthy, earthly kind of problem for, the, for God incarnate, word-made flesh to have to deal with. I picture Jesus sighing, thinking, so the journey to the cross begins today at a wedding party. Because what you do with somebody who has that kind of power is you either worship him or you kill him. But he says, fill the jars with water. Six jars holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. We're talking about 150 gallons of water, roughly. Fill the jars with water. The servants do as they are told. He touches nothing. He says nothing. Now draw some out and take it to the chief steward. And when the chief steward samples the new batch of wine, he says, this is not just wine. It's the best ever. The best wine ever. Of course it was. What else would you expect from Jesus? <laughs> Randall Hampton is responsible for that particular image. 
So the steward says to the bridegroom, hey, dude, congratulations, you've surprised us. Everyone serves the good wine first and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. Drunk? Nicely observed, steward, but what is this passage doing in our Bible? But there it is. And then the steward commends the groom, hey, you've kept the good wine until now. You guys are the best hosts ever. This is the best party ever. No shame, no humiliation, no, no, no lawsuits. Yippee-ki-yay, we're having a great wedding party. The narrator says, Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. You bet they did. Jesus just proved himself master of creation. He turned 150 gallons of water into wine without a word, without a touch, just by willing it in his mind. Imagine if you had witnessed that. And it wasn't just decent wine, it was awesome wine. Now, Baptists don't know anything about the distinction, but there really is a difference, is my understanding. That's what people tell me. So what an intersection of heaven and earth this day in Cana. God incarnate first reveals himself by saving the day at a wedding. By revealing his identity, he cements the belief of his disciples, but he also begins the countdown clock toward his own execution. But John makes very clear that the death that will be visited upon Jesus, Jesus willingly takes upon himself for the salvation of the world. So most sermons should have applications, and so there are a couple that I could draw, like always plan adequate refreshments for your parties, okay? Good, good takeaway point. We have a wedding coming up in a month. Always plan adequate refreshments, right? Okay, Jim and Linda's daughter's getting married. I'm doing the ceremony, and I'm fully expecting a very finely prepared wedding. There it is. Another lesson might be that if your mother asks you to do something, you should probably say yes. So that's a good one. Children, young people, okay. Defer to your mother. But of course, there's so much going on here. All kinds of symbolism is possible here. Jesus turns water into wine. Water is the drink of life. The fulfillment of thirst, often elusive in desert societies like the ancient Near East, where a glass of water meant everything. Water into wine. Or perhaps the narrator intends to make a contrast between the old wine of Temple Judaism and the new wine of the gospel. Or perhaps we have here a foreshadowing of that great day of the Lord when all of God's people will enjoy a tremendous messianic banquet, a great wedding feast. A wedding feast at the end to which everyone is invited and the wine will never give out. Or maybe this wine not only means celebration and a great party, as we well know because we gather around the table here monthly, 
Wine also comes to mean death and a last supper, a symbol of blood shed on a cross. This is my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Maybe what we are to see at Cana is a whole bunch of oblivious people celebrating their good fortune and the wonderful host who took such good care of them. And disciples who are standing in awe at who it is exactly that they are following. Somebody who can turn water into wine without a word, without a touch. And then we can also maybe see Jesus, who is looking ahead to the cup of suffering that he will drink when he goes to the cross. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's Sermon of the Week. Be sure to follow us online at fbcdecatur.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Have a blessed week.